One of the things I do for fun is hang out with other menopause experts and discuss complex or interesting cases. Sometimes these discussions occur in a panel as part of a medical conference in order to educate other doctors and healthcare professionals. And sometimes these discussions occur privately, as in, I really want someone else's opinion. In this episode, I'm going to chat about a complicated patient with one of my go-to experts, Dr. Risa Kagan. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Dr. Kagan is at the top of my list when I need a second opinion, not just because she's super smart and experienced, and not just because she's a friend and one of my favorite people, but because she was part of the research team for many of the drugs that are used to treat menopause when they were in development. And she understands them on an entirely different level than I do. And today, Dr. Kagan and I are going to collaborate on solutions for a perimenopausal woman who has hot flashes, bone loss, a history of a blood clot, doesn't tolerate progesterone, and a family history of breast cancer. And you get to eavesdrop on our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Kagan. Thank you for having me here today. You know, this is one of the rare times that we're chatting on Zoom. It's so much more fun when we are chatting in person, which is how it usually is. Today, we're going to talk about a complex patient. And, you know, I was thinking about this before we get started. I mean, isn't it nice when someone shows up in your office and they have like no medical problems, no special concerns, they're just having hot flashes and they come to you and say, hey, what can I do about the hot flashes? And you can prescribe any number of either non-hormonal or hormonal things based on maybe their personal preference and their insurance coverage, but that never happens, right? You're not seeing that patient. You're seeing the patient who comes to you for the second or third opinion because they're complicated and their own clinicians are not comfortable treating them. Absolutely. So, yeah. so to that point, this patient is gonna about, she's about to walk into your office, okay? You ready? Ready. Came through my Instagram account. Hi, Dr. Stryker. My name is Beth, and I'm 51 years old. I've been flashing for two years now and no end in sight. I really want to try estrogen, not just to help my hot flashes, but also because my mom had osteoporosis and died after a hip fracture. I don't have osteoporosis yet, but I'm really worried since I've been told I have low bone mass. My doctor won't give me estrogen because my grandma died from breast cancer. My doctor wants me to take Relaxafin to protect my bones and my breasts, but that won't help my flashes. I would also rather not take anything with progesterone since when I took it years ago to help with some irregular periods, I got really moody and bloated. I need some help here. So- Okay. She's looking for hot flash help. That's going to benefit her bones. She wants to avoid progesterone. She thinks she can't take estrogen, which means she's eliminated pretty much every product out there. And she has a doctor who is clearly not a menopause expert. So, so you're going to help her out here, but, but before we get into the nuances of this case, can we just start with her statement? My doctor won't give me estrogen because my grandma died from breast cancer. And I know we're going to say the same thing, but I'm going to let you say it. Okay, that's absolutely not a contraindication for a woman taking menopausal hormone therapy, estrogen at all. Um, But really, they just don't know what to do. And they're afraid, these doctors. And what we know, Lauren, is that there is a 20-year gap in knowledge from medical students 
to our board certified colleagues in both primary care, interest in women's health or OBGYNs who really do not know about the ins and outs of the latest guidelines for hormone therapy. So that's not a contraindication, no, but I do her, understand doctor, the concern. Yeah, and her doctor is very typical and you are absolutely correct. Those kind of messages are out there because they really don't know and they're not comfortable with hormone therapy and they just don't even want to go that direction. So we both agree the first thing she probably needs to do is find a new doctor. But lucky for her, she lives in San Francisco and she's just jumped your six month wait list by bribing your receptionist with chocolates and flowers and miracle of miracles. She is now sitting in your office. And even though you have just explained to her that estrogen is not going to give her breast cancer and that her grandma's problem is not a reason that she cannot take estrogen. She still wants to know about her non-hormonal options to deal with her bones, her breasts, and her hot flashes. So let's start with Reloxifen, trade name Avista. She brings that up because her doctor brought it up. So what are you going to tell her about Reloxifen? I love raloxifene. It's a great drug, and it actually has been studied extensively in younger and older women for maintaining bone mass and preventing fractures of the lumbar spine. But the problem with raloxifene, it's a non-hormonal agent that sits in the estrogen receptor and acts like an estrogen, but it's not an estrogen. The problem with it is causes hot flashes. So for any newer menopausal woman Reloxifene, which brand name is Avista, just won't work for that woman. Maybe years later, like 10 years from now, if her hot flashes go away, and we know the mean is about 7.4 years for hot flashes, that might be a good option for her. There's also another important factor for raloxifene. You may remember the drug tamoxifen that we use for adjuvant therapy for people who are at heart risk or breast cancer, where there was a very big study that looked at women who were high risk for breast cancer, and raloxifene, like tamoxifen, reduced that risk of breast cancer by 50%. So she, you know, it is a good drug for her, except that it will cause her to have hot flashes. And that's why I would never give it to her at this point in her life at 52 years of age. And not to mention, not only will it cause her hot flashes, but a lot of people say, well, then how about giving it with a little bit of estrogen? But she can't do that because- they absolutely can't do that because let me tell you, Reloxifene, which is called, I'm going to say this big word, a selective estrogen receptor modulator or a CIRM is a class of agents, okay, that has been studied with estrogen. It was a great idea. Years ago, they took a little estradiol and a little reloxifene, but together it caused buildup of the lining of the uterus, something called hyperplasia. It caused polyps, bleeding, and even cancer. So you really can't just take any serum and any estrogen, put them together and take it and think that's going to be the answer to all answers. So that doesn't work. Yeah. And that's such an important point because very often we are layering drugs when one drug won't solve all the problems. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that works. And we're going to talk about layering with some other things. But in this case, you cannot layer reloxifen with estrogen. Now you mentioned that it causes hot flashes. And I'm wondering if we're giving the same statistic. I generally tell women that about 6% of women will get hot flashes on raloxifen. Is is that accurate? What do you tell people? Well, it depends on where they are. In other words, this is- Let's say early on, we're talking about with like in this- Early on, I think it's much higher than that. She's already flashing. You know, she's already- No, you're talking about women- 
who say went through their worst, they restarted it to try something maybe a little bit later from their final menstrual period. And then yes, a reactivation of hot flashes about 6%. But the newer, yeah, yeah. So the newer women, I don't, it's much higher than that. It'll just make their hot flashes worse. So we generally stay away from giving raloxifene to newer, younger postmenopausal women. We are crossing raloxifene off the list and let's move on. Let's Let's move move on on. to the SSRIs and SNRIs, which I've talked about in a lot of prior episodes, the concept that drugs that are FDA approved as antidepressants can be used off label to alleviate hot flashes. So is an SSRI an option for this woman in addressing all of her concerns? Well, officially, the only SSRI that is approved with the same rigor, when I say rigor, the FDA really has a way that you must study both efficacy, will it work, and safety for women. And there is only one and only one that has really been studied in large studies uh, called Brisdell. And it's the lowest dose of paroxetine or Paxil, a lot of people know it as, 7.5 milligrams. It's hard to get. It's expensive. It does work. You take it at bedtime. And the good news of that drug is that you don't have, when you abruptly stop the drug, something called the serotonin syndrome with withdrawal symptoms. And you also don't have sexual side effects. Or the weight gain. Or the weight gain. Or the weight gain. Or the weight gain. A lot of people say, why not just use a higher dose Right. Uh, when I use a, a, a higher dose paroxetine and it's going to do the same thing for you as, as far as hot flashes, right. but then right. you're going to get the bad stuff. Right. Like so many of us do use other agents like venlafaxine, otherwise known as Effexor, and we use lower doses and there's studies with both Lexapro, Escitalopram and Celexa and Prozac. They're all been studied and largely in our breast cancer population survivor because they can't use estrogen. So there is some efficacy over a placebo, a dummy pill. But I will say that many women are reluctant because it's an antidepressant here. They're not depressed. It's an anti-anxiety medication. They just don't want to go on it. Um, And they also feel like a stigma associated with it. And they don't want to have sexual side effects. And we also know these are healthy women with hot flashes. So that's not usually an option for many of my patients. Um, I would say the one that most try, because if their hot flashes are really bad at night, is something called gabapentin. Um, And that's used, again, off-label. It's a seizure medicine. It's a pain medicine. People use it um, sometimes as a mood stabilizer. But it does help people sleep and it's it's it works for hot flashes as well. But nothing but is Dr. good. Dr. Kagan, this isn't going to help her bones. We haven't solved her problem oh, yet. No, not at all. So what, we have two approaches for women. Either you do something like a hormone therapy, menopausal hormone therapy, that yes, will preserve bone mass, even reduce one's risk for fracture, depending upon the dose, and help hot flashes, and help the vagina. Let's not forget the vagina. We're, okay? we're going to get to hormones in a minute. Okay. okay. <laughs> or if we use these other components... Um, these other therapies, alternative therapies, then you have to piecemeal our therapies. So that woman could be on an alternative for the hot flashes and on another agent, a bone specific agent to prevent bone loss, a lower dose of something called Alendronate. The brand name is Fosamax. There's a whole bunch of those, which we do give women who are at high risk for fracture to prevent bone loss, especially in the perimenopausal and early years around menopause. So we do have options for women who really cannot or won't take 
hormone therapy. Right. And and I think that's such an important point because we were talking about layering medications and this is a way that is safe and effective that you can layer to cover all the bases, if you will. But when we get to non-hormonal options, the one that people really need to know about, and I did do an episode on this a while back, but it's so new it. that, that a lot of people did, did not did not hear it, but Fisolinitin, Fisolinitin, well, yes. so That's what's right. Fisolinitin going to do for her as far as well, her hot flashes? I was just about to say, if that woman came in and really wanted a non-hormonal agent, the drug of choice for non-hormonal agents with the best, you know, largest studies, best efficacy, and safety data is what is fezolinitant, which is the brand name, but we call it Fioza. It's a 45 milligram tablet taken once a day and has really been vetted and studied. And it is worldwide studied and some studies are still ongoing, but has been approved by the FDA in the United States since last spring and has been available since last summer. It's a once a day pill that really targets the area in the brain the, you know, the thermoregulatory center, we call it, and it targets that area specifically to reduce both the number of hot flashes and the severity of the hot flashes. But it's not going to do anything for her bones. Not and it's not going to help her vagina either. So exactly. Again, it is definitely a great agent for women who cannot take someone who's had a history of breast cancer, endometrial cancer, somebody who had a blood clot, they can't take estrogen. Vioza is the drug or they won't take estrogen. Or they won't. I think that's the biggest category is the person who's their perception is that they can't take that's estrogen. That's correct. Or they're and, afraid. And they're afraid. They're afraid to take estrogen. They're afraid. Or their doctor has made them afraid. But fesolinitant is a great option. And the other thing that they found in the clinical studies, of course, is people were sleeping. They were actually yes. sleeping. And when we think in terms of hot flashes, a lot of people, it's at worst during the day, but for the majority of women, it is at night that they just cannot get a decent night's sleep. The other thing about fesolinitin that I always really want to emphasize is unlike a lot of the older drugs, this drug was tested in all ethnicities and sizes of women. Too That's often true. when we look at older clinical trials, and let's face it, they are primarily being tested in white women who have a normal weight and no medical problems. And, and the company that did the development of Fisolinitin, of Vioza, they did really an extraordinary job of including multiple ethnicities and body types in their clinical trials. And that's very meaningful. Yeah, 20% of the women were non-Caucasian, which for yes. a, hopefully down the road, we'll have more studies like this. Yeah. But they really went out to recruit women who qualified, who were absolutely not typically white. And because um, you really, it, people respond differently um, to different drugs, as we know. Yeah. So it's good to know that. So here's a question for you. In the study of women's health across the nation, the SWAN study that, of course, has generated an incredible amount of data that has been important data and helpful data. But one of the things that they found in that study is that hot flashes are independently associated with greater bone loss and higher bone turnover. That's and correct. when I say independently associated, meaning when you take all the other risk factors away for having osteoporosis, you know, things like smoking and family history and the things that we've talked about so often, but just hot flashes alone seem to be associated with bone loss. So 
Do we know, do we know if you treat the hot flashes using something like a fesolinitant, is that going to help with bones just by virtue of the fact that it decreases the hot flashes? Well, isn't that interesting, Lauren? No, there's absolutely no data. Even, uh, to tell you something, there's an association with VMS hot flashes, as you know, with not just bone and bone loss and all of that. A long list of things, yeah. And it's not directly related to how much estrogen or any of that. But we don't have the data to say that if you treat them, you're going to end up having less, except if you're treating with estrogen. And I'll tell you something else. VMS has been associated as a marker of cardiovascular. VMS, vasomotor symptoms. Yes. Yeah. Has also been associated, as you know, with many comorbidities related to down the road cardiovascular issues. And unfortunately, and our good colleague, Rebecca Thurston, has done a lot of this information. She'll say, well, the link that hasn't been made yet is treating them. Is it going to cause less of these, you know, conditions down the road. And I think that's the big leap now that we have to see as far as the future. We don't know. And there was a study going on at Northwestern on stellate ganglion block, which we're not going to get into today. It's experimental, but basically doing a nerve block that decreases hot flashes. And I wanted them to include cardiac markers in that study to see if those cardiac markers would improve once the hot flashes went away because that was a non-hormonal approach because we know it's going to improve with with hormones. And it was like, okay, if you get rid of the hot flashes doing something non-hormonal, is it going to help? And all the investigators thought it was a terrific idea, except there was no funding for it. It's amazing how you just add in a couple of blood tests and suddenly you're talking at a lot of money, huge, huge increase in money. So there's so much work that needs to be done and no money. Around hot flashes specifically and sleep. Hot flashes, yeah. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to ask you another one that there's probably no data, but I'll ask you anyway. So we've established that you cannot take Riloxifen, Avista, you cannot take it with estrogen. What about if you were to take Riloxifen with fesolinitant? Because the fesolinitant is going to take care of the hot flashes and the raloxifen is going to take care of her bones. What do you think of that, Dr. Kagan? It sounds interesting. They work <laughs> in different ways. I will tell you, they do work in different ways. You know, fesolinitant is not working on the estrogen receptor. Okay, but that's why, that's okay. the beauty of it. It's, yeah, well, that would be a very novel, wonderful, st- interesting study to see if the raloxifen fall. We do not know, though whether the fesolinitant, which is working in a certain area centrally on these things called the candy neuron, which you can look at, uh, Lauren, your podcast that you talk about the candy, not candy, K-N-D-Y, not K-A-N-D-Y. That's right. Um, right. And yeah, right. And and you really beautifully described how it's this balance. Um, But fesolinitant is, Viosa is not working on an estrogen receptor. Whereas raloxifene is. Right. So, so you can use them together. Maybe, but you know, I don't I don't encourage my colleagues to just take one drug and another and basically because we don't know uh, we, until it's tested, I believe that they should be tested in order to really see what happens. I but, agree as well. And just to be clear, in this podcast, we are not giving advocating recommendations. We no. are just giving Education. information and having a discussion, right. which is and much of what, what we do when we get together right. and talk right. about and this. Lauren, stuff. what I always say to people and show me the money, show me the testing, yeah. show me the safety and the efficacy. 
So we really don't want to give something that um, you don't has never been tested before. No, so I, I wouldn't want to take that. So, okay. No, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. All right. So you, you told her all of this and she's saying, okay, I really don't want to take a bone drug and a drug for my hot flashes. So, okay. I'm ready to hear about estrogen, but okay. I really, really don't want to take progesterone. Okay. Now, I did do a whole episode called the progesterone problem and, and kind of ran through all the alternatives to progesterone and, and get around some of the side effects that women have trouble with, like the bloating and weight gain and just not feeling good, feeling a little down and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about alternatives, but I do want to mention a couple of, of my favorite ones. So would she be a good candidate perhaps for an IUD? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. In fact, I go through the list also for women who cannot stand progestogens. And we use that word that includes synthetic progestins, which are commonly used, as well as natural micronized progesterone, which mimics what our you know ovaries are putting out. And I'd say more and more women want to use that. But even and, and which, that, by the way, people tolerate better. You know, we don't. Do this woman better. used something years ago. It was probably right. hydroxy progesterone acetate right. trade name right. Provera, which is the synthetic one, and, and that's maybe one that patient, makes people feel icky. Right, and maybe your patient who comes to my office that what she really didn't like was the synthetic progestin. So of yeah. course, I would try the micronized progesterone, right. which we call Prometrium, and um, yeah. and if she really didn't like that, believe it or not, off label. I might let her try it in the vagina because we also know that when women take those pills and stick them in their vagina, they do absorb them. It protects the lining of the uterus and we use it in pregnancy also. You know that. Okay, wait, wait, um, back, back up, back up, back up. You just finished making the point that we don't do stuff that hasn't been really, really well vetted and well tested. And maybe you have to send some of these articles my way, but I have not seen a whole lot on how much uterine protection you're actually getting with vaginal Progesterone. progesterone. Well, there is a gel out that is called, it used to be called Crino, yeah. and many people have, there is there are studies on using that for endometrial protection. So based on that, and then I do believe there are some small studies in using vaginal progesterone. You can absorb it. We, we know that from blood levels. Now, do we have the real Evidence, no, but you know, we're trying to help people and we do right. share decision making. And I can also monitor the lining of the uterus with an ultrasound. And frankly, this is better than unopposed estrogen, meaning you take estrogen and you have a uterus and you don't take any progesterone at all. So we have many women that love estrogen and they will say, listen, do a biopsy on every year, do an ultrasound every year. I'm taking that risk with shared decision making because I want estrogen, but not progesterone. So and you brought this up. So I'm going to circle back to this because I wasn't actually going to ask you, but now that you brought it up, I will. When we think in terms of taking unopposed estrogen, what we do know and what we tell patients is that if you take estrogen alone without something to protect the lining of the uterus, either progestogen or some of the other things we're going to talk about, that there's a tenfold increase in the development of uterine cancer down the road. But that data is very, very old data. And it was based on a time when women were taking significantly higher doses of estrogen. You know, back then they were taking almost double of what we give women now. So is there any more recent data using a much lower dose of estrogen, estrogen. a 0.5 of an estradiol or maybe a 0.45 of conjugated estrogens that also shows that very yeah. significant increase in uterine cancer? Yes. Um, the PEPI data, which is not like 
yesterday, okay, but it was out in the last 20 years, okay? Um, I, gee, I forget the year that Pepe was published. It's been, a, it's been almost 20 years, I think. Yeah. So yeah. Pepe had an estrogen alone arm. And after three years, those, and then it also had the natural progesterone, micronized progesterone, I say uh, mimics our body, and it had the synthetic progestogen, medroxy progesterone. And Pepe alone showed after 36 months, there was about a 30, I think it was a 33% increase in endometrial hyperplasia. What, what dose of estrogen were they taking? 0.625 of conjugated estrogen, which is Premarin, which is equal to the estradiol, one, one milligram, or a patch of a 0.05 patch. So we do have data on endometrial hyperplasia and cancer of unopposed estrogen, and there's many other studies as well. I don't advocate that, but I will say that there are women until recently with this drug that I love that I'd like to get to here. We will um, be getting to it in just a minute. Okay, <laughs> called Dua V. Um, we had a lot of women who really wanted to take unopposed estrogen and we monitored them with the lining of the uterus, with the sonogram and the biopsy. And we try to stay low. What, what I would do in that case is stay low, low, low. Yeah. And I mean, the lower the dose of estrogen, I will tell you one thing, everybody who's listening. But then you're not going to protect your bones. Well, you can protect your bones with both low dose and you have a less risk for the lining of the uterus developing something called hyperplasia, which is a pre-cancer and endometrial cancer, uterine cancer. So the lower the dose, the better for cancer risk of the uterus. And yes, we do have some bone protection with the low doses, even the ultra low dose. And there was a patch that a colleague of ours published, a 14 microgram patch, the lowest of the lowest, okay? And um, may he rest in peace, Dr. Ettinger, who after after two years of a weekly, very low dose patch, and they they found efficacy for hot flashes. Now the average age was 63, but after two years, they did not have endometrial hyperplasia on that dose um, of to when they did biopsies at the end. So, but a couple of caveats with that. I mean, that's obviously very reassuring. But hyperplasia can take years to develop, and True. When we're thinking in terms of particularly bone protection. I mean, flashes. Right. We're looking seven to ten years on average, but we're looking at the greater good of of what is estrogen going to do for your bones and your vaginal health and your brain right. and all of that. So. Right. I think you and so, I are pretty much in know, the same camp that for most women, yeah. we're not saying take it a couple of years and go off. We're looking no. at, the, at the long haul. I know. I the, know. The, other, the other variable as well that I think is important to mention is that the women who are greatest risk for developing hyperplasia and uterine cancer are women who have obesity because right. we know that there is formation of estrogen in fat cells. And I think we have to be very careful in terms of treating those women to not do anything that's going to increase their risk more. I will. I will agree with you. And I'll tell you the best woman to take estrogen alone, and I'm not advocating estrogen alone nowadays because we have many other options, are women who have a hysterectomy, so they don't have their uterus. But you asked something I didn't answer, and that is about the levonorgestrel Mirena IUD. And that is my next go-to. Before going on the drug we're going to talk about, I will say like woman, Voldemort before we get to the drug that was right really uh, because people need to know about DuaV. Yeah. We're going to talk yeah. about that yeah. because a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. When I tell a lot them, of doctors I, don't know about it, I know, and they look at me and they go, "Why didn't anybody ever tell me about this?" Yeah. And um, so, uh, levonorgestrel IUD is off label, but it's used in Europe, and there are some studies. And 
we are using it as a local form of a progestin to the lining of the uterus. Women have minimal absorption to worry about side effects and women don't bleed, which is really nice because that's one of the number one reasons why women go off menopausal hormone therapy. Two reasons, fear of breast cancer and breast tenderness and an effect of breast density on their mammogram. They throw it in the basket and abnormal bleeding. Who wants to bleed postmenopausally when you're on? I want to bleed premenopausally. Right. You forgot the third reason. The third reason is their gynecologist prescribes it and they go to their internist to say, right. oh my God, go right. off that right away. So there right. is that reason too. All right, we're gonna, all right, now we're going to finally get to what you really want to talk about. The reason you agreed to do this podcast and take time out of your busy, busy, busy schedule. But we are going to talk about one of your favorite, favorite drugs to prescribe. And that is Duovi. And Duovi is a combination of basodoxifen and conjugated equine estrogens. I do have a chapter on it in my Hot Flash Hall book, but I haven't covered it during a podcast because first of all, I was waiting for you to say that you would come on and talk about it. But second of all, um, for a long time, you couldn't get it. You know, it was FDA approved in 2013 and then it disappeared from the market in 2020 and it just came back. So before we talk about the drug itself and the pros and cons and what people need to know, can you just explain why it was taken off the market and why it took so long to bring it back? Well, believe it or not, well, it was approved in 2013, as you said, and it was just picking up. A lot of people are just learning about it when in 2020, in the height of the pandemic, uh, Pfizer had a recall of all of the drug worldwide. This is worldwide. There was a packaging issue and oxygen was getting in and destabilizing and deactivating the agent. So they withdrew the drug completely and they tried multiple different remedies to fix this problem with this inner packaging of the product. And they just couldn't come up with it. It took three years. I mean, it finally came back this last spring and we're very happy it's back here. And there was no issue with safety or efficacy. It really had to do with getting oxygen in that was really deactivating the product. And now they work, they did a workaround. They finally found out what they had to do. They have this uh, to help, you know, preserve the packaging the way it should be. So and that's, and that's well the done. number one point. There was nothing, there were no concerns about the drug itself. It was just stabilizing it and the packaging. And I thought the reason why it took three years is because they couldn't figure out the right packaging. I think it's because Pfizer was so busy developing and getting uh, the COVID vaccine out amen. there that they put women's health on the back burner because isn't that what always happens? Well, that's what people said, but I've talked to people. I don't think that really was a story. It's a, good, it's a, good, it's a good idea. It was really, it was hell though during the pandemic because all there were women who go on this drug and love it. They love it beyond your imagination. And I was, I, I, I rarely talk about myself, but- Duave was the drug that I was taking. I was hoarding it. I was, you know, I found samples in the office and you would have thought it was gold. Everybody was like, no, I want it. I want it. And so we were all hoarding it. And then even I ran out of it. All right. Before we get to, there's two components to this drug. I want to start with talking just about basodoxifen because as I've talked about many times, the majority of combination menopausal hormone therapies are a combination of estrogen and a progestogen of one type or another. And this is not a progestogen. This is estrogen with basodoxifen. So what is basodoxifen? 
Well, remember we just talked about raloxifene and we talked about tamoxifen. Well, basidoxifene is in the same family. It's called a CIRM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It is a product, it's a drug that is made to sit in the estrogen receptor and block the estrogen receptor in certain parts of the body. So it's an antagonistic, we say, and it stimulates the estrogen receptor in other parts of the body. Those are what these CIRMs are. And there's and, a whole bunch- You said that, you know, CIRM stands for selective. That's what we mean by selective. It selects which estrogen receptor it's either going to stimulate or which receptor it's going to block. That's and correct. a lot of people call these designer, designer CIRMs. You know, oh, yeah. Designer estrogens was yeah. the old term years ago. Right, right. Because you pick out what is it going to do. Tamoxifen blocks receptors in the breast. Right. And, right. you know, relaxifen, right. as you were talking about, stimulates receptors in the bone. So tell us about what... Okay. Basodaxifen is selected. Okay, well, what does all, it do? All, I want you to know that all CIRMs actually are very blocking in the breast, just to keep that in mind. And they all really are good for bone. Okay. But where they differ is in their effect on the uterus, causing hot flashes. They usually all cause some and also um, on the vagina. So let's just start by saying basodoxifene is a, a, a CIRM that has uh, been studied extensively in Europe and worldwide, but it did not get approved in the United States because it's not that dissimilar to like raloxifene that we have here. But in Europe and many other countries, Japan and a few other countries, basodoxifene is a standalone drug that has been approved for the prevention of bone loss, prevention of osteoporosis, and also treats fractures like raloxifene does, of the lumbar spine specifically. So basodoxifene is a standalone drug um, in other countries, but in the United States, the company that makes basodoxifene decided not to go forward for an approval here in the United States, and we just don't have it available to us in the United States yeah, as a standalone gonna, drug. And I'm going to circle back to that in a minute, but all right, so you've established that basodoxifene is going to build bone, help bone. Stop and, bone loss. And stop bone loss. What is it going to do on breast tissue? Okay. So basodoxifene is a little unique. And I've actually spoke with some of the people who discovered it. Instead of just blocking the estrogen receptors, and this is in some animal studies, I will just tell you, but instead of just blocking the estrogen receptor in the breast and the uterus, okay, what it does, it actually degrades that receptor, the area where estrogen would work, all right? So it's very selective for the receptor in the uterus and the breast and blocking it and degrading it. And it's what's called an estrogen degrader, okay? So that's something that's unique about basodoxifene. And some brilliant researchers said, gee, do we have, what would we, what would, what would it be like? This was like years ago, even before that big WHI study. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could test an estrogen, specifically conjugated estrogens, which is called Premarin? Now, this was the number one agent on the market forever. Okay. And it was held by Wyeth that then became Pfizer. And they also had basodoxaphene. So these brilliant, PhD researchers and by you know, they basically said, let's see what would happen if we tested first in animals, 
Then after the animals, they went to human studies, different doses of the Premarin or conjugated estrogen and different doses of basidoxaphene with the goal of finding that, remember I told you the ideal menopausal hormone therapy and what is the ideal? Treating hot flashes, not causing breast density or breast pain, or we don't have enough data about breast cancer yet. Um, but, well, we we're, we're going to talk okay, about that. Okay. But, but wait, and it doesn't cause abnormal bleeding and a buildup of the lining of the uterus to cause hyperplasia or cancer. All right. And, um, and it doesn't create any side effect like more bl- blood clots or, you know, something like that. So they went and started testing different doses of this combination. And I was an investigator on many of these clinical trials called the SMART trials. And uh, worldwide studies, they've studied it in 7,500 women. And one of the studies, which was very early on, which looked at bone, hot flashes, safety on the lining of the uterus, and the breast as well, that study even studied women from 45 to 70 years of age. Most of the other studies don't go that long. And that was a two-year study. That's huge. Um, Yeah. And then the last study that we got, we call SMART-5, was really another large study with over 1,800 women in it. And that study, what they studied against a placebo, the dummy pill, was they looked specifically at mammograms and breast density. Because we know that breast density is a marker of future risk for breast cancer. There's no breast cancer data on this agent, but it does lend itself to a lot of, you know, interesting research, okay? Will this agent, which combines a certain dose of Premarin, conjugated estrogen, with a certain dose, 20 milligrams of basidoxaphene, and it really is being looked at specifically for women, say, who are at high risk for breast cancer. Yeah. And and just to as a reminder to everyone listening, in the WHI, in the group that took estrogen alone, the 50 to 60-year-old group, there was an 18% decrease in breast cancer. So if you combine the conjugated equine estrogen with basodoxifen, as you said, we don't have the data in terms of what kind of decrease or protection you can expect, but certainly it makes sense that there will be a significant reduction. There is a a multi-center trial that's going on that I'm sure you are aware of, if not involved in, because you tend to be involved in a lot of research. And this is a study where women who have been diagnosed with DCIS are given Duvi. They are given estrogen and basodoxifen, and then they re-biopsy them to see, without any other treatment, to see what happened to the DCIS. And those um, results, to my knowledge, have not been released yet. No, the last time yet. I checked, it was still ongoing. But the fact that we have a bunch of breast oncologists who are totally on board with this, I That's think correct. sends quite a message. Yes. And there's another study going on for women who are at high risk for breast cancer. And then they are going to give, and they have hot flashes, and they are going to basically be given this drug, do a V, for six months. And then what they're going to look at is breast density specifically. And then they're also going to look at some non-direct imaging of certain biomarkers in the breast. So there's a lot of interest for breast and breast safety related to this drug Duavi. And as I said, it got the official approval based on dosing studies, okay, um, for, and in this country, it's Duavive, and worldwide, it's called Duavive. So Duavive and Duavive, I don't know why, but basically 
it has been approved officially since 2013 for the treatment of moderate to severe hot flashes due to menopause and to prevent bone loss related to menopause in newer menopausal women, as well as women who are further away from their final menstrual period. So they actually looked at two different groups of women to check bone loss in, um, and it preserves bone loss. So what is the impact of V on the vagina? Well, I was the lead investigator in that study. Of course, of course you were. (laughs) It did not get the official approval for um, what we call now we call GSM, uh, genital urinary syndrome and menopause, but vulvovaginal atrophy, because it missed a few endpoints, but it was very efficacious in many ways. And we know that in clinical medicine, you look in women's vaginas, most women on V report that they are comfortable and don't need extra estrogen in the vagina, uh, maybe a lubricant or moisturizer. But I will say it did not get the official approval because to get the approval, you have to meet certain endpoints and it missed a few endpoints. Well, not to mention when you look at any systemic estrogen, there's not one of them that is going to, in 100% of women, eliminate vaginal dryness and pain. And at least 15 to 20% of these women, we need to supplement That's with correct. either local vaginal estrogen or something else. So it certainly it sounds like- it depends on the dose of estrogen. You know, I tell women the last place to get it is the vagina. So of course, the higher the dose estrogen, and we'll get to the vagina eventually, but not always, as you said. Um, but the lower dose estrogens that we use, and I'll tell you, this is Premarin 0.45, it's conjugated estrogens 0.45, which is a little bit lower than most many of us use in newly menopausal women, especially. So we sometimes have to give an extra estrogen to the vagina. So we've established that V is safe and we've established that it's effective in terms of bone health and hot flashes. When it comes to hot flashes, is it as effective as other menopausal hormone therapies? There's no head-to-head trials. Now you know, know that, okay? So, um, you know, but it is, that's why they did different dosing. And I believe in SMART-1, there was a reduction similar to estrogen, like you for 0.45 estrogen. I mean, they had a placebo response was greater than the placebo. But, you know, I think there was a 74% reduction, which we, honestly, you know, you have to remember that estrogen alone is the gold standard, but you can't do that if you have a uterus, okay? So here you are blocking some of the positive benefits of estrogen with the basidoxaphene, all right? And listen, we had six doses that we studied. You have no idea how hard this was. No, actually, and, I've, I've heard about this study and I'm floored at yeah, how that, And they finally came up with the 0.45 and 20, and there was also a 0.625 and 20 that was investigated at the end, The FDA only approved the 0.45 and 20 because you have to really balance all of the efficacy versus the safety. Okay, but let's talk about this 0.45 dose because quite frankly, that I think is is for a lot of people an issue. Because when we are prescribing estrogen, whether we're using an estradiol that we're giving someone a one milligram or a two milligram, or if we're giving someone a conjugated estrogen and they're either using a 0.45 or 0.625, it is not one size fits all. And there are many women who have very, very severe hot flashes and they require 
more estrogen. And it's easy to do when we're using estrogen and a progestogen separately because we know how to balance it. We know how to make sure that we have enough progestogen to protect the lining of the uterus, even if we go up on estrogen. That's true. Vasodaxophen, it's a little trickier. So if we have a patient, your patient mm-hmm. comes in and she's taking duvet and she says, but Dr. Kagan, I'm still flashing. I'm still flashing. What are you going to do for that patient? Well, we have to have a discussion about the pros and cons. And it depends on how old they are and whether they started it newly menopausal. I will say if a woman wants to transition from what they were taking, which might have been a higher dose to this to a V, they may not be so happy because it's a lower, slightly lower dose. And they have to But decide. she's happy because now she knows her bones and breasts are protected. That's, so she loves her duovi, but she's flashing. Are you going to give right, her a little extra right, estrogen? Right, right. Well, I know from clinical research that they did study a dose that was slightly higher and it looked pretty safe, but not perfect. So when you say reasons, safe, you mean in terms of, of uterine protection? That's correct. And that yeah. one of the reasons why the FDA did not approve the higher dose was that they wanted more, there was a little bit of proliferation. That means growth. There wasn't hyperplasia or cancer, but there was some proliferation of the lining of the uterus. So maybe 20 is not really enough long-term for that higher dose of estrogen. But in the short term, and this is really off-label, Lauren, okay? Okay. Uh, We experts for women who have a good reason can't tolerate a progestogen, they can't stand the bleeding, They have terrible family history of breast cancer, and they're so anxious about being on it. Um, I think some of us do sometimes add a little, little bit more estrogen for a period of time. Um, And I have one woman who I actually found the sweet spot with a little more estrogen, and she was could never take a progestogen. So it's better than estrogen being on unopposed estrogen. And I monitor her. I do an endometrial uh, sonogram. I look at the lining. And, you know, it's very what we call off-label. Yeah. It is the art of medicine. But but again, we're talking about what the what the superstar experts are comfortable doing. That's Most correct. people are not. All right. So this this patient who's still in your office, it's been a very long consultation. She's still there. <laughs> and she's all happy because she says, great, this is going to take care of my hot flashes. It's going to protect my bones. It's going to protect my breasts. It might even help my vaginal dryness. And then she drops the bombshell and she says, ooh. I forgot to tell you that when I was taking birth control pills, I had a blood clot and I was told that I should never take oral estrogen. And in addition, she says, and you know, I got to tell you, I, 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 I love horses and I really worry about the yeah, idea of right. using horse urine and that it's going to be, you know, mean to the horses. And I don't know if I'm so happy about taking this particular estrogen. So let's very quickly put the horse issue to, to bed because yeah. I hear two things about horses that when we talk about Premarin, one is, is that it's not natural. And I'm thinking, okay, humans are a lot closer to horses than they are That's to correct. To plants, right. so right. you know we're that's you know you can scratch. I say the it's very thing. natural, and they treat them like gold. Let me just tell you that they well. That's the other thing too is they treat these horses like gold, and the idea that they you know, put them in these horrible positions and they tie stuff in these urine bags and they beat them and they starve them—it's just yeah, simply right. not true. And there's actually very very good data which you can find if you look in the right places that looks at the treatment. So we're going to put aside the horse issue, but I just wanted to mention it because it comes up a lot. Um, Or my vegan patients won't take it. There's no question. Yeah. They absolutely won't. Yeah. So, 
Okay. You know, in the early days, they took urine from pregnant women instead of pregnant horses, but that didn't go so well (laughs) for a variety of reasons. Right. But anyway, all right. But the, but the bigger issue is, is that this woman is concerned about blood clots. And we do know that when we think in terms of estrogen, that the thing that does concern us is that oral estrogens do have a slightly but significant risk of developing a blood clot. And in general, if we have a patient who is at high risk for a blood clot, we're going to put them on a transdermal estrogen. That's and But this is an oral estrogen. So she says to you, well, why don't I just use one of those transdermal patches or gels or something and, and take the basodoxifen separately? Because I want this magical pill, this basodoxifen, but I don't really want to take the oral estrogen. What are you going to tell her? Well, I'm going to tell you that basodoxifene also has a risk for blood clots, and it's pretty equal to estrogen. So that's why early on, when we were doing the studies for DUAV, we were concerned that there might be an increased risk of blood clots because they're both working at the estrogen receptor, and they both have an increased risk for blood clots. And But guess what? We found out that they're working at the same estrogen receptor, and there was no increased risk for blood clots. But in your this patient, I would say, I am so sorry then I'm not comfortable giving you an oral estrogen and an oral serum together. And she is not a candidate right now for um, this agent. And yeah, that's so we're going to put bad. the IUD in her uterus and give her some uh, transdermal estrogen. <laughs> well, some people, it depends on the etiology of her blood clots right. from the birth control pills and right. with, with what is surrounding it, because some people will not do that even. The, the so then we have to go details. back to Vioza and a little vaginal estrogen and maybe some or follow her bone densities and see okay. if she's losing, she's got to stop. Uh, with All right, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to say that the blood clot wasn't her problem, but her friend, her friend was on an oral estrogen and it killed her libido because she didn't have as much testosterone available. So she was switched to a transdermal and she did better. And even though she didn't come in talking about her libido, she says, you know, I would just rather use a transdermal estrogen and can I take basodoxifen separately? And- Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no way that I would allow somebody to use a transdermal estrogen and get basodoxaphene from Europe, okay, and combine them. Because we have no idea at all about basodoxaphene with estradiol until you test it. We do know, do you know that estradiol is not exactly the same as conjugated estrogens, which is made up of uh, 20 different types of estrogens. And some of it is estradiol, and some of it is estrone, and some of it is equiline, and some of it is this mix of estrogens. And not there are people that do feel that conjugated estrogens is a very different breed of estrogen than just estradiol. And it's better. And it's better. We know who those people are because we we talk to them all the time. And I think that that's an important message that there are scientists and experts out there who really understand these different types of estrogens and who don't make this blanket statement that, oh, it has to be a plant-derived bioidentical, that this whole idea that because something is plant, that it is safer. We know that's not the case. And certainly we can make the case that a conjugated equine estrogen in many ways has a number of advantages over the plant estrogens, but we're battling 
what's going on out there. You know, I always say perception. to people when they bring up this thing with the friend and the libido, and if someone comes in complaining, we do want to change them to a transdermal delivery of estradiol because then it frees up their own free testosterone by not raising liver, liver, the sex hormone binding globulin exactly. and all of that. Yeah. But honestly, I say to somebody, you're not your friend. Who knows if it's going to be a problem? You may be so happy sleeping without hot flashes. Please try this agent. And you may have more libido because you're finally sleeping and you have energy for sex. So I think um, that's what I would say to her. And I would say the exact same thing because that's the truth. When we talk about libido, there is nothing that is more multifactorial. And to say that it's just one thing and that if someone switches from an oral to a transdermal, then suddenly they're going to be in the mood. It's just not the case. There's too many other things going on. You and I often agree on everything, Lauren. So this has really been fun. This has been fun. Is there anything I didn't ask you about, Duve, that I should be asking you? The patient's left already. She's exhausted. She went to have lunch and said, thank you very much. She took her prescription for Duve. She doesn't really, the blood clot, she was actually wrong. That was her sister. She's fine. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No, I just think it's something that should be in many people's little armamentarium as one of the options for hormone therapy for women who are symptomatic and would like to preserve their bone mass and get some of the benefits of estrogen without having to be on a progestogen. I will say one other thing. The the lack of breakthrough bleeding and what we call amenorrhea, no bleeding on this drug is amazing. So that would be another reason if someone kept coming in saying, I've tried so many different kinds of combinations and I just keep bleeding and spotting and I don't want to bleed and I don't want to spot. One of, one of the things that has been shown again in the last big, what we call SMART trial, was the amenorrhea rate, the lack of bleeding was way better than when they compared it to the conjugated estrogen with the medroxyprogesterone. And it was similar to the dummy pill. So that is another one. Breast density was the same as the dummy pill placebo. The abnormal bleeding was the same and it was efficacious for hot flashes. And it was a way in which we could give women hormone therapy without being on a progestogen. And I have one other comment. Every time I give a lecture about DUAV or DUAV worldwide, Somebody gets up and raises their hand and asks, what dose of progesterone do I need to use with this agent? It's important to know that if you are on this for hormone therapy, you do not need to use a progestogen. That's the point of it. I'm amazed that you get that question, but nothing should amaze me anymore because you and I have been on that stage and up at that podium too many times when we get questions and we just look out at this audience like, where have you been? Right, right. Well, then I'm talking audience of doctors, not audience of of women. Right, exactly. Then I think I'm not a good teacher because they didn't get it. (laughs) They were checking their email instead of listening while you were talking. Right, right. Yeah, no, but this it's it's really interesting, and and again, it's it's so funny how we circle back to how we started this, and this is a woman who went to a doctor who wasn't helpful, and instead of saying, "I'm not an expert," let me refer you to someone who is. She gave misinformation. And that's that's the major thing that we're battling. When we talk about drugs like this and we can say, how come doctors don't know about it? And how come the word isn't getting out and we're doing our part to educate doctors? And the real issue is, is why is it that doctors are not okay about referring when they're not an expert? You know, we always did. If we had someone who had a condition that we didn't treat or whether it was fertility or a very high risk pregnancy, 
we refer them to someone who could help them. And right. And they can find some, you know, certified expert like you and me, or even a member of our, the menopause society at www.menopause.org. I'm telling people that all the time. All the and time. then you find- Although it's interesting though, because Risa, I, I will tell you that I mention it, of course, all the time. It is in my program notes. The most common question that I get on social media every day is I live in fill in the blank. Where right. do I find a doctor? Where do I find a doctor? So that message is not getting out there. And granted, in some places, if you're in LA or New York or Chicago, you're going to have a lot of people to choose from. And if you are living someplace more remote, you quite frankly might not have anybody who's a certified menopause practitioner. But whereas years ago, I was not a fan of telehealth. I have right. changed that because it is, first of all, there's some companies that do an outstanding job that they're not online pharmacies. They're actually giving menopause care, good, good information. But it's also the reality is right. that there is not access. Women can't find these doctors. They can't get to them. And right. this is a way for women to access evidence-based good care and, and finally get the help they need. That's true. I also want to just say one thing. They're not all doctors. Some of the oh. best menopause practitioners are advanced health nurse practitioners and peace. And um, they are delivering some very good care and they are also certified, many of them, and they know a lot about menopause. They're so, actually delivering most of the care. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting how this field has evolved because certainly when I was running the menopause center at Northwestern, and this is still the case, the overwhelming majority of care is delivered by our phenomenal menopause certified advanced practice nurses, physicians assistants, and that is certainly the case throughout the country. And that has really been one of the things that has been a huge, huge boon to menopause care because these are people who've taken the time to educate themselves and, and give outstanding care. Right. Anything else? When am I, I going to see you next you. in person? I don't know. What's I our know. next conference? I, know. I don't know what's coming up. I know. Iswish no. maybe. I don't know. Are you going to Iswish? I don't know yet. It's in maybe. California though. So I know. Yeah. I so know. thank you so much. Thank this you. Thank great. you for spending this time. Yes. And I will put all kinds of information in the program notes because we threw a lot out there. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light, now I'm sleeping through the night.